Expert Insights session was recorded in front of a live webinar audience on the 25th of November, 2020. The topic was Using TMS and Ketamine to Treat Depression, Efficacy, Evidence and Application. On the panel we had Adam, our lived experience representative, Rowan Francis Taylor, consultant psychiatrist at the Black Dog Institute Depression Clinic and Neurostimulation Clinic, Adam Bayes, consultant psychiatrist at the Black Dog Institute, senior lecturer at the School of Psychiatry, University of New South Wales. Chairing the session is Dr. Carol Newell. All right, everyone, welcome to tonight's podcast, which is using TMS and ketamine to treat depression, efficacy, evidence, and application. Um, good evening, everyone. My name is Carol Newell, and I'm a clinical psychologist, um, and I'll be moderating the podcast for tonight. But before we get started, I just want to give my acknowledgement to country. Um, the Black Dog Institute would like to acknowledge the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as the as Australia's first people and traditional custodians. We value their culture, identities, and continuing connection to country, waters, kin, and community. And I want to pay my respects to elders past, present and to the future and are committed to making a positive contribution to the mental health and well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across Australia and we want to welcome any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people here who are joining us in the audience. Okay, so tonight's panel members, um, what I might get uh, our, our panel members to do is just have a little bit of a whip around and get them to introduce themselves very briefly in terms of their titles and um, and a little bit about their background expertise in relation to this particular podcast. So we might start with Adam S., our lived experience representative. Adam, could you tell us a little bit about um, your expertise in this area? Hi everyone, um, I'm Adam and for me as uh, mentioned I'm coming to this panel with lived experience background. Um, I'm almost 30 and my lived experience probably started from when I was about 10 uh, and that's gone on on and off over the years. It was really quite intense when I was younger, um, eventually leading to getting ECT when I was a teenager and then being quite well for over a decade and then recently in the last few years I've uh, had to restart treatment and that treatment was TMS. Uh, so I can bring uh, that sort of experience of where I was at, where I'm at now and how that's affected me over those years. Okay, thanks Adam for that. Um, next up we've got uh, Rowan. Yeah, thanks Carol. So I'm a psychiatrist based at the Black Dog Institute, um, working in the, the Black Dog Depression Clinic and also the Neurostimulation Clinic. So I've got a, an interest in um, you know treatment of mood disorders, um, in particular with neurostimulation treatment, so TMS, um, also ECT. Uh, and I'm a, an early career researcher as well. So I've um, actually in the final throes, hopefully, of my PhD thesis, which is focused on uh, ECT treatment technique and how to um, improve treatment technique. Thanks, Rowan, for that. And now we've got Adam B. Because we've got two Adams tonight, we'll be distinguishing between Adam S., our lived experience representative, and Adam Bayes, uh, our consultant psychiatrist tonight. So Adam B., Thanks, Carol. Yeah, um, so I'm a psychiatrist uh, like Rowan, and we, we work together at, at Black Dog Institute. Uh, and I'm also an, uh, an early career researcher, sort of on the other side of my PhD. Uh, so I looked at um, my PhD was looking at bipolar disorder and distinguishing from borderline personality disorder. 
Um, but yeah, my key research areas are mood disorders, so depression, treatment-resistant depression, and bipolar disorder primarily, and uh, in particular, looking at novel treatments uh, such as neurostimulation, which we'll be talking about tonight, and also ketamine. Uh, and I also uh, work in private practice, uh, and I'm a an academic at School of Psychiatry at UNSW. Okay. Hi, Adam. Thank you for that. So let's get started on the podcast. I've actually stopped this shared screen and we'll get straight to the questions. This first question is for Rowan. What exactly is TMS and how did it come to be used for depression? Yeah, thanks, Carol. Um, so, so TMS uh, stands for transcranial magnetic stimulation. So TMS is a, a non-invasive form of brain stimulation that relies on uh, pulsed magnetic field to stimulate the brain. Um, and it's been around uh, as, as, as sort of a, a potential intervention for some time. And actually, I was surprised when I first found out a few years back that it was invented in 1985, which is the same year I was born. Um, I think TMS has probably achieved a little bit more than me in that time frame, but I won't take that personally. Um, and, and, and as you say, it's, I mean, we're talking about depression tonight, but it's, it's actually been explored for its utility in a range of conditions. And that sort of relates to what TMS does. So, um, treatments, uh, administered using a coil like this one, if that sort of shows up, yeah. um, and for depression, the coil sort of sits on the frontal part of, of the head to stimulate the prefrontal cortex or the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex usually. Um, and the, the coil produces this pulsed magnetic field which passes through the scalp and through the skull um, to stimulate the brain directly under the coil. And it provides a fairly uh, focal uh, form of stimulation and a fairly sort of small area of stimulation relative to something like ECT, which provides a sort of a fairly broad um, field of stimulation. So TMS can be quite precise in, in stimulating um, the more superficial regions of the, the cortex, you know, over um, or sorry, under the, the, the coil. Um, with respect to depression, um, you know, we're, we're normally sort of administering TMS over a period of weeks. So it's a treatment that's sort of generally given on a daily basis, you know, five times a week for generally sort of around four to six weeks. Um, and, and again, sort of contrasting it with something like ECT, which requires a general anaesthetic um, and, you know, needles, cannulation for intravenous access. None of that's required for TMS. So um, people come in, sit in a fairly comfortable chair. They have the coil sort of placed on the head and arranged in the right position. And then um, treatment proceeds, you know, often for around sort of 30 minutes or so. Um, and we, we sort of tend to see, uh, for those who benefit, a cumulative response over a period of, of weeks. Um, so that's sort of, a, I guess, a brief description of, of, of TMS. And um, as I say, it's been used in other areas outside of depression. So for a variety of different um, psychiatric conditions and, and also neurological conditions as well. Right. Um, and Rowan, you said that it's quite precise. And is it quite different for each individual in terms of where that stimulation needs to be? Or is it just general? Like, So I guess what I'm saying is, is there a precise location for a certain type of depression or is it pretty broad? 
It's a good question. I think the, uh, I mean, where we're at at the moment is that we, we do tend to administer a more, um, uh, you know, it's not quite a one-size-fits-all treatment, but we do tend to administer um, treatment protocols that have shown um, shown to be effective in patients with depression um, in large, you know, research trials. Um, so we do tend to target that dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, so the sort of the, the, the frontal region of the brain. Um, but there is certainly interest in making TMS uh, more personalised, and that's kind of one of the emerging research areas looking at trying to um, individualise TMS um, and you know vary the treatment location based on um, the individual symptoms, and you know perhaps um, using things like functional neuroimaging to target uh, the treatment location. So I wouldn't say that that's kind of common in, in terms of widespread um, clinical TMS at the moment. We do tend to sort of use treatment protocols that um, stimulate or aim to stimulate the same region in different people, um, but that's probably an area that we will see substantial development in the future. Yeah. Um, thank you for that, Rowan. Now, on this podcast, we've been lucky enough to have Adam S., who has used TMS for his depression. Adam, um, Adam S., can you provide us a little bit more about the history of your journey with depression? You've mentioned that it's been quite longstanding and, and how you came to actually use TMS eventually to, to manage um, your depression. Yeah, um, well, to take you quite far back, uh, as I said earlier, I'm almost 30 and with hindsight, it probably started when I was about 10. Um, wasn't no trauma, nothing, no event had occurred. Uh, it's purely just seemed to be a chemical um, occurrence. But back then, there wasn't really this understanding that there is now about depression and, and, and mental ill health that there is today. Uh, and so it wasn't really picked up, but it kind of manifested as school refusal and my grades were dropping. I was quite, I had a, quite a lot of outbursts at home. Uh, so it was sort of behavioral. Then things sort of settled down um, and then it re-emerged again as sort of an undiagnosed situation when I was about 13 when I started high school uh, and it eventually, I was just so miserable at high school, I didn't have the words to express how unhappy I was. I was at an all-boys high school, you know, high focus on academics and, and everything else and I was miserable and it actually manifested towards the end of the year. I, I lost the ability to walk, they gave me a physical diagnosis, but had nothing really to, to show it. But that's all they could really say what it was. And with hindsight, I can now look back and in my mind, it was very much a connection to just how unhappy I was. Uh, fortunately, things started to improve once we once I changed high schools and things were good again for quite a few years. And then when I was about 15, 16, uh, things started to unravel again. There was no event, nothing caused it. I just, my mood went downhill very, very fast. And for about a two-year period between the ages of 15 through 17, I went through the whole mental health system and tried to figure out what was going on. I was lucky with finding good doctors. I was lucky with finding good psychiatrists um, and support around me with family support as well. But it was a really tough process. I initially went through trialing medications and none of them work. A lot of side effects came up with them. And it was really, it was a very difficult experience to go through all that time as well. I, my suicidal ideations increased significantly, hospitalizations, loss of friends, couldn't go to school. It was, it was, it was horrible. Um, and towards the end of that two-year period, I can remember looking back and going, I'm I'm done. 
you know, I initially fought for myself and then I was fighting for my family and I convinced myself that I was a burden on them, that my existence was actually much worse than any damage me no longer being here could be. And I convinced myself that I was going to end it. I was sick of trialing medications and I was sick of being told this one and that one on the process. Um, and looking back, it was the scariest part about it all was just how much I believe that to be true, that the world would be better off without me. And But I, wanted, I was going to try one more treatment. I heard about it when I was in hospital and it was ECT. And I was going to give it a go. And I very much know sitting here that if that didn't work, I would not be here today. Uh, fortunately, it did work. Uh, but it obviously was a quite invasive process at the time. Um, it was just before my 17th birthday, so I was 16 at the time. And I went through the process. I had to be an inpatient um, and I had it three times a week for two months. Fortunately, it worked. Um, I had quite bad side effects. So the side effects for me predominantly were short-term memory loss. We didn't know how long that would last for. And... So when I tried to go back to high school in sort of an HSC year, HSC, if anything, it's a memory test and there was no point in being in school. So a hard decision as well to leave high school. And I did, but then I could focus on my health and exercise and work and a bunch of other things. And I, my mood had been great for the next almost decade. So over that period, I became a personal trainer. I then worked um, at a few gyms in a health retreat. I ended up writing a book about my experience to share what I went through to be a positive impact, especially on young males and other people to, to know what it's like going through it. And then and worked in the mental health industry for quite some time as an advocate and a speaker and a consultant on these sorts of things. And then a few years ago, I decided to go back and study um, for better or worse and do post-grad law, so a Juris Doctorate in Law. And since then, my mood significantly initially it was from a few environmental factors a toxic relationship my grandparents passing away um, as well as just the pressure of university and my mood dipped for the first time in almost 15 years I was depressed again um, and I was self-aware enough to know part of my well-being is sort of introspection to know how I'm feeling and I was very bad and over the years I'd heard about TMS um, I didn't want to try medication again uh, and I thought TMS would be a good first step prior to ECT, met with my psychiatrist, spoke about it all and went and had TMS and it worked. I was really, really lucky it worked. Um, and then the next year, so this was now two years ago, university happened, pressure built up and burnout occurred and burnout then triggered another depression, depressive episode. And then I went back and got TMS again and it worked. I had another course and it was decided at the end of last year before COVID and everything else happened that university this year would still be to cause pressure um, that I should get maintenance. So that just meant going in once a month, getting a course, getting a dose, and that would be maintenance. And I've been doing that this year. And despite the events of everything that's gone on, despite being probably for the first time in my life, actually feeling overwhelming anxiety and a whole bunch of other things, I haven't been depressed. Having that course and then that maintenance PMS over this past 12 months has kept me, has prevented me from becoming suicidal like I had last year and um, prior. So that might have been a bit of a long version of it, but that's that's essentially my experience with it. Thank you for sharing that with us, Adam. I mean, it's quite a long journey, right? And that despondency as well around antidepressants that didn't work, you know, during mm. that terrible time um, in your adolescence. But now the journey you've come to having TMS, which is, you know, it's quite accessible in a lot of ways. As Rowan was saying, it's 
not as invasive as ECT and yet is quite effective, but it's kind of regular use over time, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, for me, it was, as far as I understood, and could be, please correct me if I'm wrong, it was you needed to do a, a sort of a, a more concentrated period of, of doses initially, and then maintenance can then be once a month. So initially when I was getting it, I think it was two or three times a week for X amount of weeks until like it amounted to 20 to 30 sessions, I think, in total. Um, and then I could just go in, and then maintenance was literally just once a month um, for me personally, I know it varies between people, but yeah, so initially it was, it was a bit more of a concentrated dose and then the maintenance for me is I've been able to pop in once a month for half an hour and it's kept me really well. Yeah. Uh, later on, we're going to ask you some more about what the experience is like getting TMS, but right now I want to turn to Adam B, um, Adam Bay, to talk a little because that's also the other innovative treatment um, that sort of, you know, come online for us and, and starting to gain quite a bit of attention. Um, and that is your research program. Could you provide us a little bit about ketamine? Because in a lot of ways, it's very similar to something like ECT in the way it works. I mean, clearly different categories. Um, you know, one is neurochemical, the other one is neuromodulatory. Um, but Tell us a little bit about ketamine and how it came to be used for depression. Sure. Yeah. So ketamine, um, yeah, probably a lot of people have heard about ketamine, particularly uh, as a recreational drug. You know, typically people have heard of it for that reason, or they say uh, it's a horse tranquilizer. Um, but actually ketamine has been around for um, over 50 years, uh, and originally it was synthesized as a, um, for anesthetic purposes. Um, so it's a dissociative anesthetic and, um, it was approved in the U S in, in 1970 for, for use in anesthesia. And it's been used, uh, throughout that time. Um, and, you know, in, uh, also in children, children are often given ketamine, um, can be orally. And then there was some a few early studies uh, looking at ketamine uh, in mental health patients, um, and then there was some anecdotal reports uh, of Im of improvement in mood. But really, it wasn't until two thousand, uh, so 20, twenty years ago, um, that there was the first small RCT, which compared ketamine, uh, a single intravenous infusion of ketamine versus placebo. Uh, it was just a one-off dose in depressed patients that weren't on any other treatments. And it was quite a small study, but it was quite remarkable uh, for two reasons. One was that it, it induces very rapid antidepressant response. So for most antidepressants, we know that, you know, usually they take several weeks to take an effect. And this, this effect was within hours. So it was quite, uh, quite profound. And secondly, the magnitude of the effect was very large. So a, a reasonable proportion of these patients that were depressed actually went into remission, as in they, they, they didn't really meet the criteria for a major depressive episode just after this single dose. So it was quite... Um, quite remarkable for those two reasons. And then there was another study that slightly bigger study that confirmed these results, that it was a rapid uh, antidepressant effect and it was a robust effect. 
Uh, and since that time, there's been more research, um, larger trials using um, different routes of administration. So originally it was intravenous, uh, intravenously administered, but actually ketamine can be administered basically anyway. It can be oral, um, uh, yeah, subcutaneous, intravenous, basically any route of administration. Uh, and there's been larger and larger trials that have shown this robust antidepressant effect. And it also has anti, an anti-suicide effect. Um, and you can imagine that's quite important and may have some advantages over standard antidepressants where a patient might have suicidal thinking for many weeks before the antidepressant kicks in. Um, and with ketamine, you know, it can, it can kick in much earlier. So potentially there's some advantages there. Additionally, um, uh, what was I going to say? Um, I lost my train of thought there, but it'll, it'll, it'll come back to me. Um, now, basically since that time, there's been some trials of a form of ketamine called S-ketamine. Um, and there's, this is actually uh, being prepared in an intranasal formulation. Uh, so that has some advantages over obviously injecting uh, someone with ketamine. Um, and this is, there's been some large multi-center randomized controlled trials that have uh, been done internationally. And this is now available in some um, jurisdictions like the US and New Zealand, but uh, it's not currently available here. And I think we'll get to that later on. Uh, yeah, so I think it's, um, oh yeah, I've remembered what I was going to say. Ketamine also seems to be effective in this treatment resistant depression group. So this is a group of patients um, that, that maybe like Adam S who had tried a whole bunch of other antidepressants and weren't really, uh, wasn't really working for him. But in this group, it's been found that ketamine can actually be an effective treatment. So again, it's about a, about a third of, of patients have a treatment-resistant depression. And so it's quite exciting that ketamine can be effective in this group. Um, Adam B, you know, it sounds like there's quite a remarkable effect just from starting ketamine, right? That's that first randomized control trial where you see this very fast acting effect. Um, and in that way, it sounds a lot like ECT. Does it last or is it repeated treatment? Yeah, so it's, that's a great question. The original studies were just a single dose of ketamine and essentially the, the typical response was it would work rapidly. Uh, there'd be a, an antidepressant response, but then it would wear off over after a few days. And then perhaps by a week, uh, the patient might, might be back to square one. So obviously there's problems with, with, with that um, patients wanting to obviously have a sustained response. So there's the newer studies have looked at repeated dosing of ketamine and this typically starts off as twice per week. Uh, and there's the potential that it can be tapered down and patients potentially could go on a maintenance therapy, a bit like Adam S alluded to with TMS. So whereby uh, you get well, uh, 
and then you have maintenance ketamine perhaps stretched out um, to stay well. Now, having said that, it is uh, sort of early days in terms of the, the research there. So there have been some studies that have looked at this maintenance approach, um, but it's yet to be really translated clinically. Um, and I should add that like ECT, uh, m- most of the trials have looked at ketamine in addition to an antidepressant. Okay, so, um, and, and like ECT, patients are usually on an antidepressant and they remain on an antidepressant post course of ECT. And likewise, the, the majority of studies with ketamine have been in conjunction with an antidepressant. Yeah. And ju- just um, before, before I finish, yeah, you've drawn the, the, the comparison with ECT. And I think it's a good comparison, actually, because uh, it's, there's been one study that compared randomized patients to either ECT or ketamine. And essentially, the magnitude of the response was about the same. In fact, ketamine was um, a little bit more potent. And in addition, it was a little bit more rapid. So it's it's similar in that sense in terms of its the strength of response, um, and also this idea of giving it just twice a week as well. It's a little similar to ECT, um, and that this idea that you might have a course of ketamine, like you have a course of ECT, uh, perhaps to get well and then stay well on an antidepressant afterwards. So there's there are some similarities with ECT. Um, interestingly, it, it, and it's less like the standard antidepressants like SSRIs, SNRIs, et cetera, which is quite a different profile, which is, you know, obviously taking that taking SSRIs, SNRIs every day. Um, they take many weeks to work. So yeah, they're quite quite different. Uh, and also the mechanism of action of ketamine. Uh, it works um, on, a, on a different system, at least initially, compared to the standard serotonin noradrenaline that most antidepressants work on. Yeah. Do you know what the process is for ketamine that makes it work so well? So what are the neural processes that occur? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. It's, it's, it's quite complicated, um, and it's complicated for a few reasons. Um, so ketamine, when, when I talk about ketamine, it's, it's actually uh, made up of uh, two sort of mirror image molecules there's S-ketamine and R-ketamine. Mm. So standard ketamine is 50% of each. And they're mirror images, but they probably have slightly different properties. Uh, and, and then the body metabolizes the S-ketamine, R-ketamine into various other uh, substances. And we don't really know exactly which is having... Uh, which effect. So that's sort of yet to be worked out. But look, there have been studies in um, particularly animal, there's been animal models and, and, and rats, uh, and looking at um, basically giving rats ketamine and then cutting up their brains afterwards to see what's happening. It's a little bit cruel. Uh, and basically, after two hours, uh, of receiving ketamine, there's changes that take place in the rat brain. Uh, so that 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 sort of matches with what's going on clinically. 
And there's things like brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Um, so there's actually synthesis of substances like brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Uh, and this is, this is a substance that's good for the brain. And it causes basically synaptogenesis. So it causes sort of neurons to kind of start talking to each other a bit more. And we know that in, in depression, there can be in certain brain regions uh, a loss of neuroplasticity. And so it's thought that ketamine increases this neuroplasticity in certain key brain regions and, um, yeah, gets certain neurons uh, uh, talking to each other and, and growing. So that's sort of the, the, the basics of a mechanism. But a, a lot needs to be worked out. Um, and again, a bit like ECT, Rowan, you might be able to comment on this. I think ECT stimulates brain-derived neurotrophic factor as well, doesn't it? And, and I think it's fair to say, whether we're talking about ECT or TMS, uh, much as you've said, Adam, uh, you know, we have... Uh, suggestions of of, of uh, sort of things that happen when when people receive treatment and respond, uh, and but we don't have a complete mechanistic mechanistic understanding. Much as we don't have a complete mechanistic understanding of depression itself per se, and 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 I guess we talk about depression using a single unifying term but as we know you sort of talk to five people with depression you're going to have five very different experiences five different combinations of symptoms five different responses to treatment and uh, it makes it a, a, a little bit more tricky absolutely um now there's a question in here that actually leads directly to my next question we've got an audience question which wanted to ask adam look what does it what is it like to actually undergo treatment for tms and how do you notice you know when it worked for me for adam which yes yeah, um good question yes. uh so for me personally it feels like just tapping on your head. Like if you've got your finger and just did that, that's for me all it feels like. Uh, I personally haven't ever felt, it's not a pleasant feeling, but it's certainly not an uncomfortable feeling. Um, I'm awake during it. You're in a comfortable chair. You're conscious. You're, I'm sitting there usually talking to the nurse or whomever is administering it to me, um, fully awake with it all. So that's sort of how it feels like. It almost doesn't really feel like anything and you very much get used to it. Um, and interestingly, when I first started, was I was in the check. That was constantly for about a 20 minutes, whereas now I can get two sessions and it's a much shorter dosage. So it's just kind of that pause, pause for about three minutes-ish. Um, and how do I know that it works? Well, I think for better or worse, I like to look at it, try to find the positives in it all. My long history of experience, uh, part of me being well and strong over the years has been being able to early detect what's going on. Um, so not only have, as I said earlier, I got ECT when I was quite young, and since then I hadn't needed any medication, um, but I made a lot of lifestyle changes to better support my health. And part of that was being quite self-aware of when I was dipping or making sure I had professional support as well. So I knew when to catch it early on so it wouldn't spiral out of control and certain environmental triggers, whether it be a relationship ending or when after, unfortunately, when pets pass away and, and, and various other things to make sure I'm supporting myself through this stage, uh, through those stages. So I know it's work. I know it works because I know when I'm no longer depressed. And interestingly, 
I sort of went to go get it because my depression had been triggered again and it was environmental factors and it was essentially stemming from the burnout that I was feeling from uni. So I was feeling this burnout, I was feeling this anxiety, and then all of a sudden there was this depression. Um, and so when once the, the environmental stresses were away, the anxiety went, my depression was still there. And I noticed it lift because not just internally do I start feeling better, but I'm able to do things that I wasn't otherwise able to, you know, symptomatically, I know what my symptoms are for depression. You know, I don't want to leave the house. My weight changes, my energy changes, my attitude changes. I get more snappy. I'm less social. All of those things I've become aware of what, I guess, um, overt symptoms, let alone how I'm actually feeling, uh, whether I want to, you know, I'm actually feel motivated to leave the house. So that's kind of what my measure is. Uh, and as I said, this year for me, it was probably the most strongest confirmation of how well for me it works is that maintenance because this year I have been more stressed and anxious than I think I've ever been my entire life um, to it be it actually having a really quite um, bad effect on me. But I wasn't depressed. I wasn't suicidal. I wasn't any sort of lethargy or, or exhaustion I could associate to the anxiety rather than the depression, which usually has a sense of hopelessness and a lot of, for me, suicidal ideations and thoughts um, that come with it. And, and so that's sort of really what found my... I guess, awareness of that. Um, and for me as well, it's been really fortunate. The side effects that have sort of come with it, there haven't been any. So I've been able to have sort of a clear mind of what's going on. So with ECT, there was the memory loss and a lot of other things with this. I can literally go sit in a chair for half an hour or whatever it is and go on with my day, go and read, study, drive, do whatever I need to do. Uh, so there's not, I guess, the side effects from other external influences uh, that might be sort of affecting how I'm feeling. It's Actually, this year has been really quite interesting for me, a confirmation of just how well uh, the TMS has worked. Yeah, and that actually answers Anna Napoli's question uh, live, which is does TMS have the same effect of short-term memory problems that ECT does? It doesn't sound like it does. It sounds like there's not that that cognitive side effect for you. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm sure everyone's different and everyone experiences things differently, but for me personally, there's been no noticeable side effects. The only thing that might have been occurring, but we don't really know whether it was that or whether it was just a symptom of my exhaustion generally, that after I had a dose, especially when they were close, um, especially when I was going over the course period when they were more concentrated um, dosages, I I felt quite tired after a session, um, not to the point where I needed to come home and sleep, but just I felt like I'd exercised or I'd done something, like I'd exerted myself. Uh, but that was just otherwise, other than that, I hadn't had any um, side effects at all. My memory, cognition, everything else that comes with it has been fine. It hasn't seemed to have any impact at all. Um, Tom has asked, uh, and maybe I'll direct this one to Rowan, which is, are there any contraindications for TMS? Yeah, it's a good question. There are a few, and I guess the contraindications relate to what we're doing with the treatment and also some of the potential um, rare serious effects of, of, of TMS. So I think I'll really endorse what Adam was saying, that most people experience kind of fairly mild um, effects of the TMS, and they're mostly local effects um, under the area of, of the stimulating coil. So, you know, kind of phrased as scalp discomfort or, you know, occasionally pain, but it's, it's it's fairly rare for people receiving clinical treatment or in trials to sort of stop treatment because it's not tolerable. Um, 
thinking of, of sort of relative or absolute contraindications, uh, I guess one of the concerns with a pulsed magnetic field being applied to the brain is if there was um, metal implants or um, intracranial devices or even um, people who have had metal injuries like metal in, in the eye, metal fragments, et cetera, um, because we're exposing um, you know, those things to, to a pulsed magnetic field, there is the potential to either heat them or move them um, and that's not a good idea if they're in the eye or, or, or in the brain um, and if it's a an intracranial um, sort of implant that's there for a particular purpose we don't want to um, potentially disrupt that device and, and, and interfere with the purpose that it's there for so that's something that we always screen for um, one of the other kind of again very rare um, potential complications with TMS is the ability to precipitate a seizure. And when I say rare, I mean, we're, we're thinking sort of in the order of one in a thousand, perhaps even less. Um, so this is quite a rare event, but it has been documented in the literature that, you know, by stimulating the brain with TMS, you can um, uh, produce an unwanted seizure. And, and the risk of that happening would be higher in people with, you know, the expected risk factors for seizures. So if you've got an established epilepsy um, or if you've got maybe uh, an intracranial focus like a previous um, stroke or, or some other condition that might um, uh, make it more likely that you might have a seizure. Like if you, you know, for, for instance, if you're using kind of alcohol in a dependent fashion and then you stop or benzodiazepines in a dependent fashion and you stop or um, so all of these things, you know, we, we evaluate uh, in a fairly sort of rigorous fashion before proceeding to TMS. Um, they're, they're sort of the main things. I guess there are special groups who, for whom, you know, the evidence for the use of TMS in terms of safety is maybe not quite to the level that we'd like it to be. So for pregnant women, for instance, and, um, you know, I know one of the areas you were interested in asking about, Carol, was um, adolescents, so younger adolescents in particular, um, you know, the, the absolute number of patients in those cohorts who have been treated is reasonably small. So, you know, we're very cautious when we're discussing TMS in that sort of circumstance and we would need to make sure that, you know, it's really a, a considered decision. Um, there's, there's informed consent that other options have been sort of trialled or discussed. Um, they're some of the things that we consider with TMS. Yeah. Thank you for that, Rowan. Now, Adam, what about ketamine? What are some of the risks or potential side effects with ketamine? Yeah. So, look, the the original, as I said, the original studies and 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 previously when people might go to hospital and they get ketamine as an anesthetic, it's just a one off, a one off treatment. And the acute effects typically are a, a big. You can get a big spike in blood pressure, so you become hypertensive transiently. Mm -hmm. That's quite common. Um, and obviously, the, because it's a dissociative anaesthetic, there, there can be dissociation, confusion, unsteadiness on feet, uh, nausea, vomiting, that kind of thing can happen. Um, again, it, it depends on the route of administration. The typical patient, um, usually those effects are reasonably mild, other than the, the spike in blood pressure. And so um, part of the research team I'm involved in at Black Dog, we've, we've developed a tool called the Ketamine Side Effect Tool or the K-Set. 
And um, this was developed out of a systematic review that was conducted by a colleague, Brooke Short. And she wanted to just look at, you know, what, what, did, what was the evidence out there uh, for sort of long-term side effects of ketamine. So if you give someone ketamine, not just as a one-off, but repeated dosing, you know, is that a, do we know if that's safe or not? And she found that actually there, weren't, there wasn't much information available. There weren't very many studies. Most of the safety data looked at um, outcomes for four hours after a one-off dose. So she concluded that really we needed to, to, to know more before um, you know, going ahead and, and treating patients with multiple doses of ketamine. So we developed this ketamine side effect tool, um, which essentially looks at, uh, based on this systematic review, looks at the um, potential uh, side effects that might be out there. Um, and part of that also came from some data from recreational users, uh, particularly in Hong Kong and China, um, where there has been a bit of a ketamine problem and, and uh, certain individuals were using quite high doses repeatedly. And what was interesting is um, in addition to, be- to developing uh, dependency on ketamine, we know that ketamine is potentially addictive, um, some of them developed bladder problems. And it's a so-called ket bladder or ketamine bladder um, and this is because ketamine is uh, excreted through the bladder and in the urine. And so ketamine, uh, if it's sitting on the, the lining of the bladder, can be an irritant and can cause, you know, basically inflammation of the bladder. Uh, and that it, it can be potentially quite serious. Uh, other... Potential side effects are liver inflammation uh, and, and potentially cognitive side effects. So essentially we developed this tool, ketamine side effect tool, and we're now administering that uh, tool uh, as a part of a number of studies to basically look at individuals um, across time having repeated doses of ketamine to see, uh, you know, is it what is the frequency of, bladder issues, uh, cognitive issues, dependency, and so on. Um, so we're hoping to, to add to the field in this way. Having said that, there have been some of the large studies of the uh, intranasal ketamine have been following up patients um, for sort of up to 40 weeks and, uh, and have been noting down some of these side effects. Overall, um, the safety data is is looking reasonable, um, but there's still probably there still needs to be further data gathered, uh, really, in terms of the long term use. And I think essentially uh, careful monitoring of these side effects, uh, potential side effects, is very important. Absolutely, it sounds like this might be the um, one of the gaps um, where we're going to see some major developments in that area before it's introduced to Australia. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, look, the the the, the S-ketamine spray um, has been approved uh, in the US uh, and in New Zealand and, and forty jurisdictions jurisdictions around the world. It's not TGA approved here. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is Therapeutic Goods Administration, so we're. Uh, that's yet to be seen. But, yeah, I think there needs to be more experience, really, and more data 
uh, in, uh, to, to be gathered before we can definitively, you know, before we can say uh, ketamine can be sort of rolled out more than more than it currently is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but unlike ketamine, TMS may be made available quite soon through Medicare. And that's Megan Kelly's question. How close are we to having TMS made available via Medicare, Ryan? Yeah, it's a good question and one that I think lots of people are keen to have an answer for. And I, I hope the answer is quite soon. Um, <laughs> although I, I want to go on the record that I'm not promising and I'm not in control of that. Um, but yeah, it was a very exciting development. The um, Medical Services Advisory Council met last year and and, and supported um, Medicare funding of TMS for depression for um, people who, who met a certain criteria. Um, and, and that criteria was um, having not responded or trialed at least sort of two antidepressant medications um, and if possible, um, trialed um, psychological therapy. Um, and if you'd failed to respond to those interventions that TMS would be supported, um, you know, when that will become available, uh, it seems like the, the likely timeframe is sometime next year. Um, well, that's the best information that I have at the moment. Um, I hope that's not pushed out further, but um, we're, we're hoping for next year and that will provide um, up to 35 sessions of TMS. So um, uh, the, the, the funding that's sort of been endorsed at the moment um, suggests that for people who haven't responded to 20 sessions of TMS, but they've had, um, sorry, they haven't remitted, so they haven't been become free of depressive symptoms, but they've had some response um, that they would have access to another 15 sessions, so sort of 35 sessions in total, which is a, a reasonable you know, period of, or course of TMS. Um, and that there is also um, just recently then, in addition to that first course of TMS, been approval for a subsequent course for those who relapse, um, although it looks like there will have to be a, an interval of around four months um, before people can access that second course of TMS. Um, so I guess some positive, uh, you know, positive signs with respect to Medicare funding. Um, we've just got a little bit more of a weight on our hands. And I, sorry, do you mind, can I ask just on following up from that? Because obviously for me, I've been having the maintenance. Is there any discussion regarding a maintenance period? So for example, obviously having the first course dose, but even practically having it once a month over a year doesn't seem to necessarily fit that category, but it would also possibly prevent a relapse going forward. Is there discussion around that? It's a, it's a really good point, Adam. I was thinking of, of that when you were sort of telling your, your experience earlier. And um, as you've described, you know, receiving maintenance treatment after having had sort of a relapse and then it makes a lot of sense, to, and this is something that we do in our in our clinic. That we um, try and find some relapse prevention strategy. It's not just about getting well; it's about staying well. And that might be medication, it might be you know uh, lifestyle measures or a combination of things. But often um, we do recommend uh, a continuation and maintenance TMS, where we sort of stretch out the frequency. Unfortunately, at the moment, um, maintenance treatment will not sort of be funded by um, under the Medicare funding, although I guess uh, as usual with these things, you sort of start with one one level and, and then sort of hopefully get a little bit more and a little bit more. So um, the, on the sort of the determination that came out last year, it was initially just going to be the one course and then, you know, the more recent determination was, okay, yes, we'll, we'll support a second course because, of course, that makes sense. Um, 
they've made the decision at the moment that the evidence for maintenance treatment is not quite there to sort of support its broad use. Um, but, uh, you know, part of the issue with that is it's very difficult, much more difficult to come up with adequate evidence for maintenance as it is for acute treatment, because as you can appreciate, you, it's very easy to recruit people for acute treatment trials and to monitor them for sort of four weeks or five weeks or six weeks, whatever it is. Um, having them sort of, for you know, six months, 12 months and looking at relapse rates is much more tricky thing. So, um, of course, our evidence is not quite as good, but we do have a, a sense that there is some evidence and our clinical experience and, and you know, the, the experience of patients who are having maintenance treatment that, that it's worthwhile. And, you know, I hope that that will become something that's available in future. Adamas, how easy was it for you to access TMS? This is, you know, at a time when Medicare is not available and it's still not available until yeah. shortly, right? As Roman's pointed out, we, we don't quite know yet. It's been approved. Um, how easy was it for you to access TMS at MS? What do you foresee are the barriers for people getting access to it in Australia? Yeah, I think for me personally, I'm always count my lucky stars and I'm very grateful for um, certain things in my life. And part of that is family support that I've had. I think things sort of align. So my psychiatrist that I had when I was younger, part of me being well was I made an appointment every 12 months, just in case the worst thing worst should happen. I didn't have to find a new psychiatrist. I didn't have to start from scratch. I knew my backstory and that's probably the best thing I've done ever since I was unwell when I was younger because in these last few years, I, just, I could basically get an appointment when they had a four-month waiting list for an initial consult. They already had my history and I could go in and see. And fortunately, my psychiatrist knew someone who was a TMS practitioner or specialist um, and referred me on to them. And fortunately, about two months prior to that conversation, this person had opened up a TMS I don't know if you click clinic, it's just a small office um, in Bondi Junction, which is very, very close to me. So physical location-wise, it was very, very easy to get to. Um, and it would, I didn't have to go to a hospital or anything else. It was just in a, a, in a building. And But the other side of it is obviously the, obviously the cost. Uh, as I said, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to have been able to find the buffer to be able to um, afford that, and that has included um, family support with that. But I think... You know, my vision of the future, if you want to um, call it that, is this is something that's going to probably be almost the first point of call just because of the potential lack of side effects. Um, it's really quite effective. There's no sort of downside to trialing it um, as more evidence comes comes through from my perspective at least. And it's something that, you know, I went in and my psychiatrist, the psychiatrist there gave me a first consult and every now and then he comes in and administers it. But otherwise it's been administered by a nurse now, this could be something in GP offices, all of these sorts of things with someone who has medical training. So physically, I can imagine it being everywhere um, and quite accessible. But the main thing that's impeding it, I think, will just be the cost. Um, it can be quite prohibitive. Um, and at the same time, it's it's also it's a balancing act, you know, especially even for private health insurance and everything else, that the cost of being in hospitalisation, needing to get a treatment versus someone able to live their life. You know, as I said, I could work and go to uni and drive and live a normal life and still get this treatment that the costs can sometimes sort of measure out a little bit. Um, but at the moment, um, and hopefully not for not too much longer, the main impediment was um, the cost, but obviously being able to physically access it too. 
Absolutely. Um, Rowan, I've got quite a few questions here from the audience. They want to know whether, you know, it needs to be, can it be administered by a GP? Um, and just to correct previously what I mentioned here, it's uh, being Medicare supported uh, shortly, but TMS is, of course, already approved for use in Australia. Can it be administered by a GP or a nurse or even a psychologist? What's the, what are the um, regulations around TMS at the moment? Yeah, sure. So I guess the um, the Medicare items that have been proposed, there are two separate item numbers and one um, relates to the very first TMS session, which is where we do what's called a, a motor threshold determination. So that's kind of finding the individual's dose of TMS, so to speak. So we look for the, the, the lowest um, degree of stimulation that produces a twitch in the hand by stimulating the motor cortex. And then that informs what sort of dose of TMS we administer for the individual. And so that initial session and then the prescription, so overseeing the course of TMS, that is to be performed by a psychiatrist who's had adequate sort of training and um, expertise to perform that procedure and and sort of to prescribe TMS. Um, And then the second Medicare item number, which is, uh, you know, going to be the one that's used more often is you know, every every subsequent treatment session. And that's to be um, uh, administered by either a nurse or an allied health professional. So, uh, you know, reasonably um, broad remit, um, again, provided that adequate sort of training and um, credentialing with TMS treatment technique um, has, has been performed. So we hope that that will mean that it can be sort of, once the item number is available, reasonably widespread and quite quickly. Um, And I guess I'll just put in a plug as well um, for those looking to sort of learn a bit more about the principles of TMS um, and the technique, um, particularly once we uh, escape COVID regulations, um, we will be able to run our courses, which we we run based at the Black Dog here um, every six months. And we sort of do both the theoretical and the hands-on aspects of, of teaching people how to administer TMS. Um, there are also lots of questions, Adam B, about how to access ketamine because people are excited. What do they? What can they do if they're interested in trialing yeah. ketamine? I, look, I think it's still. Um, it's certainly nowhere at the um, stage of TMS, you know, which has been around for uh, for longer in terms of in the. There's a lot more studies. There's a lot more evidence. So ketamine um, still has a way to go. Um, it's not readily accessible uh, in Australia, um, really. Um, it's at the moment uh, it it's 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 quite complicated. There's a lot. Each state has different regulations, and um, if ketamine is administered, it's considered an off-label treatment. So it's not actually licensed for use in depression. It's only licensed as an anaesthetic. So it's really, and we, and the S-ketamine, um, which is the, the Johnson & Johnson or Janssen product, isn't, a, and that is licensed for depression. That's not um, available in Australia. So it's really not readily accessible. Um, but I think, you know, it's, pro- it's probably a while away before it can be um, can be accessed, and I just wanted to emphasize as well, it's not a. I, I don't envisage it's going to be a first line treatment um, for depression. So it's going to be more in that treatment resistant group 
Um, because as, as we were comparing it earlier to ECT, for example, you wouldn't just jump to straight to ECT. Um, and many patients, um, you know, they may get well uh, with um, psychological therapy, with lifestyle measures or with standard antidepressants. And it's more in that, um, if you like, that severe group uh, that ketamine um, would be targeted at uh, so that it failed to respond to standard treatments. So, um, yeah, and, and again, I was going to say, you know, there has been some discussion that if ketamine is as effective as ECT, could it perhaps be uh, maybe an alternative option to ECT? So going, going back to Adam S., um, obviously, he had ECT a long time ago now, um, but it, it might be, you know, there could be consideration now um, if, if a patient was particularly unwell, um, they haven't responded to standard treatments, uh, ECT or ketamine, and possibly the cognitive side, well, I think definitely the cognitive side effects are nowhere near as bad as ECT. So there could be um, some advantages there. Again, ECT, though, not to, I don't want to detract from it. It probably, it probably still is. It is the gold standard best treatment that we have for depression, though. The, the study that compared the two head-to-head -head was only pretty small. So the, the jury's out in terms of is it as effective, but it's sort of in the ballpark, it's looking like as, as effective. Yeah. Perfect. So, so I think there's, yeah, in summary, I think there's a little way to go um, before ketamine is, is going to be um, accessed, uh, be able to be accessed, yeah, in Australia. Well, we've got two minutes left and I might throw this the last question at you because uh, Adam B has talked about, you know, ketamine is for treatment-resistant depression. Is that the same case for TMS? Because Adam S, you you know, in our discussion uh, previous to this podcast, we talked about maybe this could actually be like almost like a first line treatment because it's so accessible. What do you think, Rowan? Yeah, and I, I've got a lot of time for um, Adam S's view on this, uh, and and I guess probably um, for most people understanding it, 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 you know, if if uh, as Adam B said, ketamine tends to fall, you know, towards you know the ECT end of the hierarchy. Um, TMS is certainly you know closer to the front, um, although in the research trials that have been done to date, it probably has been done in people with what we'd call kind of like a mild or moderate degree of treatment resistance. So people have failed one or maybe two antidepressant medications and generally not more than about four. Um, and that probably that relegation to after one or two trials of antidepressants really relates to, I guess, the convenience of administering antidepressants, the cost, et cetera. So there are health economic factors there which have influenced that. Um, uh -huh. Uh, but, you know, I think TMS has still shown very impressive response rates in that population of people who have already not responded to a couple of medications. And because of its benign side effects, it is worth, um, you know, it, it's up for debate whether we should be offering this earlier in the in the treatment course. Um, and that, that will be something that I think will evolve. 
So we've run out of time tonight uh, and we've got quite a few questions and just be reassured that, you know, we've recorded down some of these questions. Hopefully we might be able to email you with some of our responses. But I wanted to thank our amazing panel members tonight for sharing your experiences, your expertise, your knowledge of this really exciting, you know, new frontier in depression. And, and I say new, they've been around for a while, but we're seeing some um, amazing advances recently in TMS as well as ketamine. Um, just a gentle reminder for everyone, hopefully you can see my share screen here, um, that there are resources at the Black Dog to support you. Please do check out our website. Um, we've got quite a few professional uh, training workshops coming up um, and also our previous podcast you can follow us on Facebook as well as LinkedIn um, we will have to say goodbye by tonight until March for our next podcast because we're taking a rest over the Christmas holiday um, and we will be back um, in March so do look out for our new podcast shortly and that's pretty much it um, and these are some of the online tools as well but I just want to say big thank you to our amazing panel members for tonight um, very interesting discussion on ketamine and TMS. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, subscribe to and review Black Dog Institute on iTunes or your preferred podcasting platform. If you're interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdoginstitute.org.au.